Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome to the Dialogue podcast. But tonight we're delighted to welcome Taylor Petrie. Uh, Taylor is an associate professor of religion, and he is chair of the religion department at Kalamazoo College. He has also been a research associate and visiting associate professor of women's studies and sexuality at the Women's Studies and Religion program at Harvard Divinity School. And appropriately, his research and his writings focus on the intersection of gender studies and religious studies. His books include Resurrecting Parts, Romy Christians on Desire, Reproduction, and Sexual Difference, um, he edited Remaking the World, Christianity and Categories, Essays in Honor of Karen L. King, and he is a co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook on Mormonism and Gender. He's currently also the editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Uh, but he's also the author, most recently, of the book that you see on your screen, Tabernacles of Play, Gender and Sexuality in Modern Mormonism. Um, he'll be speaking to us on that book tonight. I might also like to say I'm pleased to be a friend and an admirer of Taylor. His work has been inspirational to my own. Um, his work is extremely influential to those of us interested in modern Mormon studies, in Mormonism and gender and Mormonism theology. So I am interested in what we will have to say. Now he will speak for about 30 or 40 minutes and after that he will entertain questions. You will see on the bottom of your screen a Q&A option. Please, if you are interested in asking a question at any point during the talk, um, click on that Q&A button, then type your question into that space. I will then moderate the questions when Taylor is complete. The chat is now turned off, so you will not be able to use it. So be sure to use the Q&A. Um, I'll turn our time over to Taylor now. He is going to share his screen and I will be back when he is done. So Taylor, over to you. Thank you. Does my uh, does my screen pop up as the main one now when I start to speak? Not unless you share it. So go ahead to the bottom and click share. Okay. There you go. Okay. Who can share? <laughs> Only host all panel. Oh, I clicked on the wrong thing there. All right. <laughs> I've got you up now. So. <laughs> Okay. Well, is it Perfect. coming up now? This is right. Yeah, you are good. Okay. And I started recording because you had said it was going to, and that, but I hadn't seen it on there just, oh, yeah. so that we didn't miss <laughs> it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so it's an honor uh, to get to speak with this group tonight, and I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to be together. Um, thank you, Matt, uh, the Franstons, the Thurstons, and others for their generosity and hospitality who helped to make this uh, possible. By way of background, I began thinking about LDS teachings on gender and sexuality in the mid-2000s. And of course, Latter-day Saints had been teaching things that were very similar to what other conservative Christians were teaching at the time. But unlike those other groups, I recognize that LDS teachings on the topic weren't especially dependent on the Bible or a close reading of scripture, but rather a set of distinctive theological ideas about the nature of the human person based in LDS tradition. This engaged some of my own interest in the philosophy of religion and critical theology of gender and sexuality that I was using in my graduate studies at the time. 
As I continued to read and reflect over the course of the next decade on the question of gender in the LDS tradition, I saw more and more the importance of an accurate history. My sense is that the history that people seemed to know was either a history in which nothing changed and selectively cited past church leaders as evidence of a continued unbroken chain of teachings on gender and sexuality, or a history that focused only on the changes in marriage practice between plural marriage and monogamy at the turn of the 20th century. I found similar patterns with the histories on women that tended to focus on questions about agency or the histories of homosexuality that tended to focus on the question of tolerance or persecution. These were all excellent questions and I commend the scholarship uh, to those who are interested, but I wanted something a little bit different. I was looking for something that would trace out the history of the concepts of sexuality, homosexuality, sexual difference, and so on. So I began the research and it took me in a number of new directions on the topic that I think help us to better understand uh, what's going on here. First, that there actually is a history to be told, not a story of unchanging doctrine, and that the story to be told is far more exciting and interesting than had been told before, at least to my eyes. And that's the larger story of my new book, Tabernacles of Clay. The book tells a number of accounts that were surprising to me, at least as I researched them, including the role of sex and reproduction as it related to LDS teachings on race, the invention of new teachings on homosexuality, the role that psychology played in LDS understandings of gender, and how 20th century feminism intersects with LDS teachings in ways that hadn't been noticed before. I can't cover all of these stories, so instead I want to focus briefly today about one aspect of this story. That's how Latter-day Saints think about the nature of gender as an essential aspect of identity. So I wanna start in the middle of the story and then we can work backwards and forwards from that point, but it's a point that's a pivot. It starts with this brief one page document, a proclamation to the world. In September, 1995, the relatively new LDS leader, Gordon B. Hinckley stands at the global women's meeting and delivers this short statement, the family. The document was a huge sensation and defined a generation of LDS teaching. People hung copies on their wall. BYU classes are now devoted to it. It lays out some basic teachings about gender roles, children, marriage, and it includes a warning. Quote, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. We call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote these measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as a fundamental unit of society. So there's a political call here. This document makes sense in light of what other conservative churches and political groups are doing in this time period. The family was a key topic of the religious right. What's the religious right? Well, it's a loose coalition of conservative Catholics evangelicals and fundamentalist Pro Protestants and Mormons that banded together to oppose such things as abortion, women's rights, gay rights, public education, pornography, and birth control. They became active in the 1970s, but reached a major peak in the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan and were a key constituent in his coalition and remain an indispensable one for Republican politics up until today. 
these are strange bedfellows. They all have pretty strong feelings against one another, but they're also kind of leftovers from the more liberal and mainstream ecumenical movements after World War II. The Family Manifesto, pictured here, was authored by the Moral Majority, Eagle Forum, Family Research Council, and other evangelical organizations. It explained, quote, marriage is a covenant of divine origin. On gender roles, it affirmed, we proclaim that male and female were established by the creator in their diversity with equal dignity and complementary value and extends to psychological traits which, natural, which, set, which set natural constraints on gender roles. The role of the male is most effectively that of provider and the role of female, one of nurturer. The manifesto promoted procreation and outlined its views of the rights of children and it further called on society to enact specific proposals that would ensure that marriage is quote, protected by government in public policy. Other organizations released similar documents in this era. In 1989, the Fundamentalist Center for Biblical, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood released the Danvers Statement in a paid advertisement in Christianity Today. This document taught that there were, quote, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles that included the husband's loving, humble headship and the wife's intelligent, willing submission. At the same time, it affirmed that these roles are uh, equally high in value and dignity. The statement was opposed to Christian feminist interpretations that favored egalitarianism at home and in the church. And it concluded by stating, quote, we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to an increasingly destructive consequences in our families, our churches, and the culture at large. The conclusion pointed to broader political ambitions on the family that the religious right harbored. The Christian Coalition introduced by, or done by Pat Robertson introduced in May 1995, the contract with the American family, which was a supplement to Newt Gingrich's 1994 congressional campaign to institute conservative economic policy in the contract with America. Focusing mostly on reshaping America's public education, Robertson and Reed's vision here strengthened the family uh, was, uh, was an expression of, of, of strengthening the family was an expression of Christian nationalism. Feminism and homosexuality were explicitly the declared enemies. Article 18 uh, emphasized also heterosexual marriage and declared that both partners were equal, but also that wives should submit to their husbands. This was the Southern Baptist Convention that, that uh, produced Article 18 in 1988. The LDS version is actually much more mild than some of those others. It doesn't address concerns about public education or abortion. It doesn't say that wives must submit. Instead, it lays out a theological perspective, one that's both familiar to other conservative Christian religious organizations, but that has some important differences. Among the familiar ideas in it is the idea that, quote, gender is an essential feature of identity, essential meaning unchanging. It offers a defense of traditional gender roles and heterosexual marriage. It grounds it in the Bible. The document uh, is really a commentary on Genesis 1 to 3 and the Adam and Eve story. And it also appeals to distinctive LDS teachings. In brief, the theological problem that Mormons face is that God is in a heterosexual relationship with a divine female figure. These beings sexually reproduce in order to create the spirits of human beings. And this relationship provides a template for human relationships 
and leaves no space for non-heterosexual relationships, both because they're supposedly not reproductive and because they either they exclude either the male or the female and are therefore not complementary. This idea is certainly heretical in traditional Christian thought and really doesn't make a lot of sense in any kind of serious ontological system. As a result, Latter-day Saints have often been ridiculed for what seems to be a rather ridiculous theology. But bear with me here. These issues haven't troubled Latter-day Saints because the ontological questions are far less important than the anthropological questions or the questions about what it means to be human. Mormons believe that the work of theology is actually to work out what it means to be human. And the distinction between God and humans is not an ontological one or a question of kind, but rather a question of degree or becoming. Mormons see humans in a state of becoming divine. So when they're theologizing about God, they're self-consciously theologizing about what it means to be human. Theology of God and theological anthropology are really the same thing in Mormonism. So this text then refers not just to God, but to heavenly parents, hinting at Mormon belief in a heavenly mother, as well as a heavenly father, who, like Adam and Eve, are then prototypes for ideal human relationships, one structured by uh, gender differences. So the structure of the cosmos is really the thing that's at stake here. But this teaching that gender is an essential characteristic was not necessarily the only view that Latter-day Saints have held. In fact, it's been quite controversial in relatively recent LDS history. I want to just read this uh, quote here from Joseph Fielding Smith, Answers to Gospel Questions in 1963. Now, I'm going to have to turn my head to read it because the type is too small on this one. So, okay, here we go. It's not the is not the sectarian world justified in their doctrine, generally proclaimed, that after the resurrection, there will be neither male or female sex. It is a logical conclusion for them to reach, and it is apparently in full harmony with what the Lord has revealed regarding the kingdoms into which evidently the vast majority of mankind is likely to go. Alluding to Galatians 3.28, that there is neither male nor female, LDS President Joseph Fielding Smith, he wasn't, he was president, uh, he wasn't president at this time, but he argued that other churches were largely correct in their rejection, in their rejection of a sexed afterlife. The idea that there would be some other sex, a neuter being that is neither man nor woman, as the norm for the vast majority of those in the afterlife made binary gender the exception for resurrected beings, not the rule. Joseph Fielding Smith had taught this uh, before and actually taught it consistently throughout his ministry. In his 1954 book, Doctrines of Salvation, he made a similar statement about sexual difference as a privilege in the afterlife, not something that everyone was going to have. He argued the, that those who do not dwell in the highest kingdom will lose the power of procreation just as they lose their marriages and families. Their bodies are marked and function differently. He explained, quote, some of the functions of the celestial body will not appear in the terrestrial body, neither in the telestial body, and the power of procreation will be removed. I take it that men and women will in these kingdoms be just what so the so-called Christian world expects us all to be, neither man nor woman, merely immortal beings having received the resurrection. 
Since the functions of non-celestial bodies don't include reproduction and sexual intercourse, the form of these bodies is necessarily different as well. There would be three sexes then, man, woman, and immortal being, an undifferentiated human. His teaching suggested that sexual difference was a contingent situational experience that only makes sense if there is something beyond sexual dimorphism. It wasn't that long ago that gender was not essential or eternal in LDS thought. Now, I wanna to turn to a couple of examples that show that the idea that gender is a contingent feature appears in several other places in LDS thought where LDS leaders believed that gender was so fragile, so contingent and fluid that it required extremely strict practices to ensure that it stuck. In brief, two major trends happened after World War II. There was a rise in the organization and visibility of gay subcultures. Sexologists and psychoanalysts had been cataloging and defining sexual pathologies since the late 1800s, and subcultures were forming in large cities at the turn of the 20th century but after World War II, homosexual networks increased and began to organize in urban areas in the United States. Alfred Kinsey's monumental report, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male was published in 1948. And he made a case for the ubiquity and normalcy of homosexual sexual contact among men. Other activists defended homosexuality as an oppressed minority class, similar to the status of race in need of protection and outlets for cultural, political and spiritual community. The second trend is that conservative Christians began decrying moral laxity and speak in terms of reforming these quote unquote perverts. What seems to be a perfect storm, Mormons after World War II are also seeking to enter in the American mainstream to shed their polygamous reputation by adopting a strong version of family values. In doing so, Latter-day Saints adopted the newly invented past of Protestant Christians that Christianity had always opposed homosexuality. And Mormons told this story as their own, which linked them then to a broader Christian past. Elder Spencer W. Kimball had been tasked to work with gay uh, and lesbian members of the church since 1947, and was developing a pastoral response for several decades afterwards. At first, it was a very small scale, uh, but by the 1960s, he began to speak and teach about his views on homosexuality. This included a proper diagnosis of its causes. And in a January 1965 speech, Love versus Lust, Kimball warns, quote, sometimes masturbation is the introduction to the more serious sins of exhibitionism and the gross sin of homosexuality. In 1969, he published this theory in The Miracle of Forgiveness that masturbation was the cause of homosexuality. This also marks a shift to a new kind of discourse about homosexuality, which used to be considered a singular act on its own, but was increasingly being considered a psychological or moral uh, 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 malady that needed to be cured and healed. At the end of 1973, Kimball was installed as president of the church uh, up until his death in 1985, which gave added authority to his prior teachings and writings on homosexuality. LDS social services took on this topic right from the start as it came under control of male priesthood leaders issuing its first guidebook on curing homosexuality in 1973. Kimball's books, speeches, and pamphlets drew on notions of homosexuality as a mental illness, and his paradigm for pastoral care had been deeply influenced by 19th and 20th century 
positive thinking movements, such as New Thought and other self-help ideologies that suggested that self-discipline of the mind was key to success in life. But what stands at the center of this idea is a certain kind of masculinity, especially about self-mastery that was the key to overcoming homosexuality and a fragile gender would cause it. But this teaching that gender is an essential characteristic, oops, I'm sorry, I went to the wrong one. These ideas about the fragility of gender, rejecting it as an essential characteristic, but rather as something quite fluid and mutable, weren't just for pastoral counseling sessions or psychological treatment, but they soon took on a political dimension when the power of the state was necessary to produce proper males and females. One of the first major rallying points for the emerging religious right was to oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. Gender issues took center stage in a conservative resurgence against the liberal social values of mainstream Republicans. The ERA had been part of the progressive agenda since the 1920s, but finally picked up enough steam to pass both houses of Congress in 1972. Its ultimate passage seemed inevitable at the time. There were Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, and the Republican president, Richard Nixon, immediately endorsed the amendment after it was passed. Women's rights were not yet a partisan political issue, but enjoyed broad public support. Mainstream conservatives were still bruising from their losses on civil rights in the prior decade, and they were eager to prove their bona fides on the right side of social justice this time around. The ERA was sent to the states requiring a two-thirds majority for authorization and quickly passed in 22 state legislatures the first year. Despite its broad political support, the idea of women's equality in and out of the home was still controversial in some quarters. For many conservative religious groups, hierarchy and strictly defined gender roles were influential norms that could inspire political action. In 1972, Catholic activist Phyllis Schlafly founded her organization, Stop ERA. Aggressive while assuming a hyperfeminine persona, Schlafly instantly became an icon of the anti-feminist women's movement and launched a nationwide speaking and organizing tour. The family, specifically its restrictive definition, was an important wedge in her rhetoric. Schlafly's opposition to the ERA rejected the feminist premise that patriarchy was oppressive. The argument was audacious in its account of the status of women. Schlafly took the view that, quote, of all the classes of people who ever lived, the American woman is the most privileged. We have the most rights and rewards and the fewest duties. Instead of inequality, American women, Schlafly stated, enjoyed special privileges most importantly, financial support from husbands that kept them out of the dreary and insecure world of the labor force. And she warned that these privileges would be erased by the ERA. Senior LDS church leaders began to explore the possibility of formal opposition to the ERA in the early 1970s. They were intrigued by Schlafly's Stop ERA Coalition, tentative, tentatively at first. In November 1974, Schlafly secured a meeting with General Relief Society President Barbara Smith. In the encounter, Smith explained that, quote, I didn't think the church would take a stand against the ERA because they only took a stand against moral issues. Schlafly, recognizing the opening, responded that she felt that the ERA was, quote, one of the greatest moral issues of our day and that it would be very destructive to the family. 
the response persuaded Smith to investigate the issue more. She scheduled a meeting with Apostle Thomas S. Monson, who indicated that he, quote, felt the church would want to take some action because they too felt that it would be very destructive for the morals of the community and the family. The twin arguments that the ERA would damage morals and the family combined to motivate church leaders to respond. This also signaled an important turn for when gender issues became external political fodder for the church, not just a matter of internal preaching. Importantly, Schlafly and LDS leaders argued that things like same-sex marriage and increase would increase, uh, I'm sorry, that same-sex marriage and increased homosexuality would be the results if men and women were treated equally before the law. So I want to weave together briefly these two stories in order to understand what they tell us about gender and religion in this period. The first is the rise of anti-homosexuality in the post-World War II era, and the second is the rise of anti-feminism in the post-World War II era. I think that what this shows is a significant anxiety about gender boundaries. Now, on the one hand, that seems obvious. The culture was changing and Latter-day Saints and others sensed it and resisted it. But the way that this story has often been told is that conservatives believed that gender was fixed, while liberals believed that gender was fluid. In other words, conservatives believed in a natural order, while liberals believed in social construction. What I argue is that this is wrong. I don't have the time to get into all of the details here, but I try to paint a different picture of how Latter-day Saints have thought about gender, showing that they, like other conservatives, also believed in the social construction of gender or some version of gender fluidity. This then explains why conservatives have been so adamant about psychological and political approaches to maintain gender boundaries. In October of 1978, the first presidency reaffirmed its earlier opposition announced uh, against the ERA. They warned that the ERA would, quote, in lead to the encouragement of those who seek a unisex society, an increase in the practice of homosexual and lesbian activities, and other concepts which could alter the natural God-given relationship of men and women. Homosexuality was the political cost of gender equality. In March of 1980, church leaders issued a 23-page pamphlet in the Enzyme, the church's official magazine, adding that the ERA would lead to same-sex lesbian and homosexual marriages. The marriages themselves would be immoral, of course, they argued, but worse, these marriages would give, quote, legal sanction to the rearing of children in such homes. LDS objections to same-sex marriage at this time reflected broader social fear that homosexuals were threatening to children. And the conflation of same-sex families with immoral sexual activity proved to be an enduring argument in later political campaigns. The fears about sexual fluidity were closely intertwined to theories of gender fluidity and unisex persons. For Kimball, homosexuality was the ultimate result of a theory of gender similarity it could only be countered by a strict division between male and female. In 1974, he taught every form of homosexuality is sin. Some people are ignorant or vicious and apparently attempting to destroy the concept of masculinity and femininity. More and more girls dress, groom, and act like men. More and more men dress, groom, and act like women. The high purposes of life are damaged and destroyed by the growing unisex 
theory. The emphasis on sexual difference extended to clothing, actions, and even grooming. The unisex theory of humanity, he believed, posed a great risk of trapping human beings in persistent gender liminality, not least of all leading to homosexuality. Laws that prevented the collapse of sexual difference were crucial in this battle of theories. The statement reveals how the idea of unisex of the unisex individual was a code for homosexuality in much of the anti-ERA rhetoric. This brings us back to the 1995 document, which warns that the family needs to be maintained by law. The proclamation on the family is an expression of the fragility of the family, of sexuality, and of gender itself, and a call to political action to sustain and support those institutions. The emphasis on gender essentialism is more an expression of an ideal that sexual difference would be fixed than a description of how church leaders thought about the fragility and fluidity of sexual difference. Part of the story that I want to tell here is not just a history of what Latter-day Saints have done, but something deeper about how Latter-day Saints have thought about uh, a gender and about sexual difference and to point out the ways that gender fluidity has a lot of explanatory value for LDS thinking. Okay, so that's the presentation and we'll go ahead and open it up to some questions. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, fascinating. Again, if you would like to ask a question, you will see at the bottom of your screen a Q&A button. Push that, uh, type your question into the Q&A, and I will transmit them to Taylor. And let's see, there we are. Okay, Taylor, our first question. How might the recent clarification by Elder Oaks that gender is to mean biological sex at birth in the family, a proclamation to the world, change members' interpretation of the document and or Mormon culture surrounding gender roles, especially considering that that is fundamentally different than how it's been taught for years? This is a great question and I'm still trying to undo a little bit what uh, Elder Oaks's clarification means. Um, it's a relatively recent one that he has given, I think a couple of times now in, in a, a few recent years. And it is slightly different as, as, uh, as Hillary mentions here to the way that the church has historically taught that, which is not about biological sex at birth, but it's about gender roles. It, it, it discusses the purposes, the quote unquote purposes of, uh, of gender and designs uh, and sort of decides about the, uh, uh, the specific roles that sort of flow from, uh, from the, the, that sexual difference. The emphasis I think on biological birth, uh, biological sex at birth is a, a relatively new formulation of that doctrine. And I think that it is really in response to issues about transgender uh, 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 issues that the church is facing now. And I, uh, this sort of borrows on the rhetoric of some of the anti-trans uh, uh, rhetoric that we see in other uh, Christian churches. Uh, just as I mentioned, the Center, the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that uh, issued the Danvers Statement, they're behind the Nashville Statement, I think that came out in 2017, I want to believe, 
that uh, is a similar kind of reformulation uh, where homosexuality isn't the target so much, but rather transgender uh, uh, identity is the target. And so I, I think that one of the ways that the proclamation is sort of being put to use now might be to address those issues, hence the reinterpretation of biological emphasis here. It doesn't really make sense to say biological sex at birth is what's discussed when uh, uh, you're talking about pre-mortal identity and post-mortal identity uh, there necessarily. Of course, I can understand that one would want to sort of make a, a correlation between the two and suggest that there is some natural relationship between, uh, between them. But I really don't think that that's the way that the, in my reading of it and in my reading of all of the, what church leaders were saying about it in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, that didn't seem to be the primary uh, concern was maintaining the biological gender at birth throughout, throughout life. It was much more about, uh, about roles, about sexuality and so on. Great. Uh, next, a question about feminism, um, which is, you touch on feminism, I suppose, in the talk and otherwise, so you might have some thoughts about this. Um, of course, feminism in the United States is concerned with distinct issues in American culture and American politics. How has the church dealt with these similar questions and movements in other cultures and other societies? Is this something you get into at all in your work? This is an excellent question, and I hope that somebody someday will be able to answer it better than I can. Um, I really am writing about the, uh, the, the influence of American culture on the church. And I think that it is, that the American culture is uh, um, especially relevant to the way that the church is dealing with, with some of these issues, though I don't want to exclude that there aren't other things that are going on elsewhere. And, I, and, and also that's not to say that, that uh, transnational feminism is dealing with radically different issues than American feminists were dealing with. They often did uh, uh, overlap quite a bit. The big issues that, uh, that the church is kind of confronting with respect to feminism are, uh, of course, lab women's labor outside of the home uh, was, was a big one. Um, birth control was another big one. And uh, of course, women's leadership and women's roles in the church. On the first two, the church really quite dramatically changes its teachings, essentially, o o over this time period. Uh, and there's a, a, a really a, quite a relaxation of those earlier prohibitions on women's labor outside the home and on birth control that had once been very strongly emphasized. Women's leadership in the church has been the one that is a little more, um, we, we've definitely seen some greater accommodations, especially relative to what things were like in the 1970s, uh, when you think that women couldn't pray in sacrament meeting for most of the 1970s, you get a little sense of why uh, feminists were so upset in the church at the time period. Uh, uh, but, but certainly we've seen a lot of progress, though not, not nearly as uh, much of a relaxation as we have seen in some of those other areas. Uh, our other, our transnational feminists dealing with the similar kinds of issues, uh, I suspect, yes, uh, but there may be some other issues that, that again, somebody who, who really is able to dig into that literature would, would be able to find. So I hope that other people do, uh, do pick up on that more. Okay. Um, we have some people interested in a clarification on that Joseph Fielding Smith quotation. And what, and to be clear, this is a Joseph Fielding Smith discussion of non-gendered individuals in the afterlife and um, perhaps the potentiality for those people existing. Has there been anything 
um, uttered by leaders of the church since regarding that question. Is this a question that is, or a statement that has simply drifted away and is not discussed anymore? Has there ever been a repudiation of it? Or perhaps other teachings that are similar to it? Great question. Uh, so so the I think it's the first and second chapters of the book talk about this, these quotes uh, and, and others uh, that are that are similar to it. And I try to situate it not just in questions about um, a, a genderless afterlife, but actually a genderless pre-mortality as well in LDS thought. And there are a number of examples of that. By the 1980s, um, we really start to see church leaders moving away from this and moving more in the direction of where we end up with the proclamation on the family. Uh, and I think that the person who's actually kind of leading the charge on that is Gordon B. Hinckley. He specifically repudiates in general conference ideas of a genderless pre-mortality uh, and says that those, even though they had been, that had been taught in general conference before, that that was not an official doctrine and that he didn't think that it should be taught anymore. Uh, so I, I think that we start to see after the end of the 1970s, a kind of transition away from some of those, uh, some of those teachings uh, and more towards what we um, now take to be the normative LDS position of a kind of consistent gender between uh, all different stages of human existence. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there's never been any specific repudiation of that, uh, of that. and I know that it exists, that it lives on in, um, uh, that the idea, the knowledge of those quotes and their relevance lives on in a lot of um, uh, subcultures of Mormonism, especially missionary subcultures who uh, uh, sometimes joke around about TK smoothies, which I think actually emerged in the bloggernacle, if I remember correctly. TK smoothie, Telestial Kingdom smoothies, the idea that uh, unrighteous people would be like Ken dolls in the afterlife. And, uh, and so, so definitely like the knowledge about this is, is somewhat widespread at least. Uh, but, uh, but, but it's, yes, it's not the official church's teachings today, but again, the, the president of the church once taught this uh, himself and, and repeated it several times. On the same note, let's go backward a little bit. Um, our, your book obviously focuses on mid to late 20th century Mormonism, but do you find similar ideas about gender or similar uncertainty about gender in the 19th century and leaders of the church in that time period? This is a great question that, again, I hope somebody else will, will research. So when I started on this project, I expected that the 19th century would see a lot of rhetoric about a kind of fluid gender and uncertain gender. And, and, uh, uh, but I ended up focusing relatively early on to, to look at the 20th century because every time I kept coming back to some of the most important things that I thought shaped contemporary Mormonism, it turned out that in the post-World War II era, uh, we kept seeing those themes showing up again and again and again. So I think that a really um, thorough study of 19th century Mormon gender norms is, uh, is, is, uh, is necessary. There are a few uh, articles. Um, Russell Swenson has one on, on changing ideas about masculinity in, in 19th century Mormonism. Um, Amy Hoyt and Sarah Patterson, I believe, have, a, have an article on the transition from uh, polygamy to, mon to monogamy and the kind of changes of masculinity that you see there. So I do think that there are a lot, uh, there's a lot of anxiety about the right kinds of ways of being male and female that are showing up there. 
Um, but I can't, I, I don't have enough facility in all the materials to have a really strong thesis about it at this stage. Again, mostly because I ended up focusing on, on the 20th century and the research. There are a couple of interesting things that I think are worth pointing out just to kind of jump on that because in 1914, um, a very famous talk that does end up influencing, I think Gordon B. Hinckley and uh, the Proclamation on the Family is uh, published by um, James E. Talmadge called The Eternity of Sex. And what he means by that is what we would think of as gender or sexual difference. The language about gender hadn't really been uh, uh, developed yet in, in um, 20th century uh, sort of discourse about sexual difference. Um, but he talks about the eternity of sex in exclusively patriarchal terms. He's like, look, there's always going to be a hierarchy. It's a natural hierarchy, right? But that's kind of readapted a little bit when we get to the patriarch to the proclamation on the family. Um, so there, I, I don't mean to suggest that there was all the time before the 1950s, 1970s, 1980s, everybody thought of gender fluidity in the afterlife. Uh, uh, but uh, there are other traces of people sort of trying to appeal to a fixed difference between male and female at earlier stages in the church. But my larger argument is that often those reveal the very anxieties that they're attempting to overcome. They reveal the fact that Latter-day Saints believed that there actually might be some risk in the fragility and the permeability of those boundaries and are trying to kind of enforce them in some way. Sure. And, and in part, right, because our assumptions about gender roles on earth reflect what we imagine the post-mortal life will be like, right? And there's a lot of worry about those kinds of relationships. And that's actually another one of our questions about the extent to which these ideas about gender relationships, that is relationships between men and women and perhaps other types of people um, in the afterlife, to what extent do you see descriptions of either the pre-mortality or post-mortality reflecting the kind of hierarchy or the confusion that we see here on earth? So much of the uh, LDS teachings that, that were uh, about this in the period that I'm looking at in the post-war period were very much about trying to enforce the hierarchy between males and females that was under assault by feminists. So they're really trying to sort of give an answer to feminism and say, not only is there a kind of natural difference, but it's divinely ordained. And if you just look to the pre-mortality, you'll see that there's always been uh, this difference. Now, the fascinating thing that emerges out of that is, of course, a kind of theological problem. Why would God create hierarchies that seem unjust, that create unfair outcomes for, for people, right? And Latter-day Saints develop a, 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 an ingenious and maybe an, even an insidious answer to this, that people chose the outcomes that they would face in this life in some, in some way. And whether that's through divine curses about uh, behavior in the pre-mortality, or even choosing to be male or female, which is what Latter-day Saint teachers were, were arguing, is that the, the hierarchy is perfectly just because everybody knew what side they were going to be on because they chose to be either male or female. Therefore, gender was a choice that one, that one undertook. So they're trying to sort of wrestle with the both what they're trying to see as a kind of divine authorization of hierarchy and also it's injustice at the same, it's manifest injustice at the same time by, uh, by injecting choice in individual responsibility uh, as the explanation for it. 
Um, so I think I lost the thread of that question a little bit, but but <laughs> something along those lines. I can't remember where I was, was going to try to end up, but but yeah, yeah I yeah. wanted to tell I mean, that. Story. We're thinking about you know the, what the nature of the afterlife will be, what the nature of the preexistence was, how gender relationships here on Earth are reflected in these places. So anything right. you want to add? That yeah, just that, ju just that I think that the, the question is exactly right, that a lot of what our imaginations about the pre-mortality and, and post-mortal life are doing are attempting to solve uh, some kinds of problems that we're facing in, in this world, right? And hierarchy was the one that church leaders were really interested in. Uh, for a long, long time in this period, the patriarchal order of marriage was the dominant way of speaking about it. And I remember growing up in the 1990s, it starts to fade out at the, at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, that language to the point where you won't even hear it in general conference. You don't ever hear it in general conference again. Uh, but it used to be used every general conference, the <laughs> patriarchal order of marriage, patriarchal order of marriage. And this was, uh, this was an obsession really. And so a lot of the LDS uh, teachings around the afterlife or the pre-mortality really are addressing contemporary social issues. So I think that that's exactly, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, okay, two follow-ups to that. One, we just have a quick request for a citation um, for um, church leaders saying that people choose their gender. Do you have a, a sense for where that comes from? Yeah, there are, uh, all the citations are of course in the book, okay? But um, there's a, a 1965 talk whose name I'm blanking on right now. He was the assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, Dyer? He, what's that? Alvin Dyer? Not Dyer. No, no. Um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. But he gives a, he gives a talk where he where he says that that uh, that uh, the reason why men have the priesthood and women are mothers is because of choices that were made in premortality. And uh, then the other major source that I look at is a 1973 book by Richard by uh, uh, Turner. What was Turner? Oh, Ronnie Turner. Rodney Turner, women in the priesthood, where he uh, makes this makes this same argument, citing this, uh, this this talk and others. I don't give all of the citations in, in the book, but those are the ones from this time period that are the most uh, most important. And they're obviously explicitly drawing on the same kinds of logic that Latter Day Saints were using to explain racial hierarchies during the same during this time period as well. So you see the kind of similar. Uh, uh, attempts to to explain these hierarchies by by thinking about choice and responsibility for those choices um, that uh, that's just a part of the discourse in this time period. Okay, well, um, and of course, right. This is uh, just related to another question that we've got now. This is um, these are things Taylor is saying about what past leaders of the church have said. He's not necessarily expressing his own views here. He's discussing the history of. Uh, of how church leaders have thought about these issues. But we have this sort of question that I know um, you tend to uh, dance around a little bit, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, which is, uh, would you like to talk about the current position of the church um, via the people who are neither heterosexual males nor heterosexual females? We have an invocation of intersex people, um, um, homosexual people of any variety right now. And where is the church going with them? Um, do you see the current the church's current positions on these issues evolving either right now in the process of evolution over the past few years and where you think they might go in the future? 
Oh, this is this is an excellent question, and I'll try not to dance around it. Okay, but uh, very, very much what the book is attempting to do, and I do focus a lot in the talk today on the 1970s, and obviously a little bit on the 1990s. But I am trying to write all the way up to the present to explain where the current church teachings on these issues came from and how they've evolved in 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 in, in these respects. Um, and I think that the overall arc of the story that I can tell with respect, we'll start with, with homosexuality, for instance. The overall arc of that story is one where we see um, a pretty close alignment with other conservative Christian churches in opposing homosexuality and a gradual, but certainly not full relaxation or greater accommodation there. Um, so we can see, I think, a, a very quick uh, thing that for a lot of people was kind of head spinning was the 2008 Proposition 8 efforts in, in California and the home state where probably most of our uh, viewers are, are there um, to then 2012, the church backing certain kinds of uh, um, uh, 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 civil rights protections for for. Um, uh, sexual orientation in Salt Lake City and and then sort of trying to adopt these much more accommodationist approaches actually far more liberal than many of the other conservative churches were willing to go and the churches attempted to sort of broker uh, the, the the differences between gay rights and religious groups with its fairness for all campaign. Um, that's not something that somebody like Spencer W. Kimball or Marky e. Peterson would have ever countenanced whatsoever, right? So just you can see some, some direct and, and immediate changes there. Um, and all, all that is to, to then kind of lead us up to, I think where we're at around trans and, and intersex issues. The church recently updated its uh, guidelines on, on these issues, I think in February of this year, which seems like 10 years ago, you know, you remember when we used to like be able to go outside and all this, but, uh, and I wrote a, I wrote a small uh, uh, article talking about that for the Salt Lake Tribune, kind of addressing some of the church's teachings, the changing teachings on, on transgender issues. Um, and I would say that the church is not quite sure, to be generous to them, not quite sure what they want to do. I, I see a little bit of uh, of, of sometimes waffling on, on these issues and some inconsistencies in the logic that they uh, that they're using sometimes, um, and so I don't know exactly where it's all going. And and that's my other sort of the other big caveat is I, I don't know if we can really tell where the future is going. I definitely see the broader arc of things toward a greater liberalization on most of the major issues that the church once opposed, um, but. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's always possible for things to go backwards. You know, had one asked me in 2012, what would the year 2020 look like? Uh, what would, uh, who would our leaders in this country be? And what would be the big, the big issues? I could not have predicted where we would be at from 2016 to now. Uh, and so I, I want to just say the future is always unpredictable and we can't really say what's, what's going to happen. And, and so it could be that things go backwards. Uh, we could see a revival of some of the some of these older teachings coming back again. I, I don't know, but um, but uh, but yeah, I do think that that we are in the midst of some kind of transition uh, on these issues. Mm -hmm. No, as you said, it's a good line that I have stolen myself in the past. Historians are about the past, not about the future. Yeah. <laughs> we are history tellers, not future tellers. 
Um, but of course, I think these kinds of questions are inevitable um, with a work like this, right? That's so relevant um, to our current state of affairs. Um, we have a question about history again, and you spoke a bit about Phyllis Schlafly um, and her interactions with some of the LDS leadership, but do you have um, any other sense for the interaction between Mormon leaders and other conservative religious groups, maybe less so in the ERA period, but more recently, perhaps with the emergence of all of these documents in the 90s, um, is there actual evidence of conversations between these groups and conscious uh, modeling of their statements? This is a great question, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll raise at the outset one of the biggest limitations of writing on a contemporary uh, LDS history, which is that almost all of the good documents and the good meetings are behind lock and key. So we do not have access to the kinds of, uh, uh, and, and some of that is that, um, really that the culture of the church around its records changed quite dramatically in the modern period uh, where, um, you know, the, the records of church, something like David O. McKay's, you know, minutes from all of his meetings and kind of the, the discovery that, uh, that uh, uh, Greg Prince made uh, around those documents that gave him deep insight of the kinds of meetings and, and, and again, the uh, really detailed understandings of the inner workings of things we will probably never see again for, for the modern church. So I, I want to say that we are missing a lot of that. However, there are a couple of places that, that I point to in the that, that is available in the historical re record uh, that do give us some glimpses into this. And I think then a broader history that you can tell from the public documents uh, that are available. And the two area, the two biggest areas of cooperation have been on um, uh, 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 psychological and therapeutic treatment for homosexuality, and the political actions taken around the, uh, by the religious right. And the evidence that we have for this cooperation between Latter-day Saints and other conservative Christians on both of these topics is quite extensive. As I say, both from the public and from the the behind-the-scenes documents that we get. Um, so you've got organizations like LDS Family Services or LDS Social Services and uh, parachurch organizations like Evergreen, which was an ex-gay uh, organization in uh, LDS culture that lasted up until ooh, 2011, 2014, I forget, sometime in the early part of this, of this decade, um, where they are extensively meeting with evangelical and Catholic ex-gay organizations and Jewish occasionally ex-gay organizations. There's a huge network of an interrelationship where the therap LDS therapists are going to go be trained by the therapists in these other organizations. They're holding conferences together. They are meeting with general authorities directly. So we know of deep interactions that are going on in that, in that realm. And the other major realm is around the political, uh, uh, the political realm. Um, these contacts, I think we, we got that glimpse from Schlafly and others in uh, the 1970s where the religious right and LDS leaders are making these connections and collaborating on a political strategy. And that, sa that same strategy is kind of reinvoked in the 1990s around same-sex marriage, first in Hawaii, where the LDS church is closely cooperating with bishops in Hawaii uh, at a local level and also at a national level as well. 
And then again in California, where the church's first contacts that it's making are with Catholic bishops to uh, to, to to do these sorts of uh, this kind of organizing. Uh, most of Prop 8's uh, foot soldiers going out and, and knocking on doors were Latter-day Saint organizations and Catholic organizations that were sort of jointly cooperating here and directly meeting together in organizations like the National Organization for Marriage, which had LDS and Catholic representatives on them. Um, we also have some documents, interestingly, that leaked. Uh, there was a famous leak of documents that were taken out of the church history archives in Salt Lake City and given to a, a gay rights activist that shows that LDS church leaders like uh, uh, Neil A. Maxwell, Gordon B. Hinckley were directly involved in the political organizing in Hawaii and, you know, frankly, explicitly saying that they were trying to cover their tracks so that their actions wouldn't be traced back to the church. Um, so we do get uh, some of this, th those kind of documents that show, that reveal that the LDS church is making these cooperative uh, uh, endeavors, that they're funding these political campaigns directly out of their funds, and also trying to shield the full extent to which they're involved. And so I think that that's one of the other limitations that we have as historians is that we don't always get to see behind the scenes, but there's enough documentation out there to kind of give us a glimpse of what those strategies do look like, at least have historically looked like in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you say, right, they get, this gets tighter and tighter and tighter after about 1960 and after uh, formal procedures for gathering of church material for the archives are put into place. So, you know, hats off to you for writing a history of a time that's rather hard to research. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's wrap up with this question. And I think this, these questions, uh, we have a couple in the feed, raise some interesting issues about the relationship between academics and experts and church leadership. You know, some of what you've said, right, indicates um, some reliance of church leadership, of ecclesiastical leadership, on experts in psychology, for instance, um, and certainly some of what you talk about was fairly mainstream psychological discourse in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. Um, and we see church leaders leaning on that. Um, given that, um, what, how do you position your book um, in relation to the church as it functions today? Um, you, know, you might say, right, well, I'm just writing an academic book and the pieces will fall where they may, right? But, but there is a kind of, as a, as a, you know, um, and, and this raises, right, question, and you, you know, this is, you cannot write a book like this and think, well, I'm, you know, no one's going to pay attention to it. I'm going to be over in the ivory tower. Um, you know, there are going to be some ramifications. That raises, I think, broader questions about the relationship between academics and ecclesiastical leadership more generally. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I am really pretty modest in my expectations for this. I, I don't, I didn't write the book as um, an agenda to, to be followed. I really tried hard to not editorialize at all in the book and to tell the story as, uh, as clearly as possible as I could, as, as I understood it. Uh, one that I would hope that um, all readers would recognize as a fair and accurate treatment. Um, and so my primary goal really was just trying to tell the story. 
I think that one of the limitations sometimes on some of the previous histories that had been done is that they did have a pretty clear kind of agenda behind them. And, um, and uh, uh, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, often to, to those agendas. So I, I don't mean to, to criticize them on, on those grounds, but I also think that sometimes that agenda shaped the way that the research was done. And I tried to not necessarily have an agenda and try to have a little bit broader than scope of what the story that I saw emerging actually looked like. And so to tell a pretty accurate history. So, so to the extent that a useful history is important for shaping mm -hmm. current conversations about this issue, um, I, I hope that uh, that this book is, is uh, provides something of that, that tries to explain where the present came from, right? At the same time, histories, of course, are not just, uh, you know, statements of facts. They are making an argument and they do have potentially some implications. I don't have, a, I don't have, I'm not a leader of the church. And, and as I often thank my stars for, I am, I don't have that responsibility. I don't know what they should do exactly. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cry myself to sleep if they did make some changes. And if they ever come asking for my opinion about things, I will gladly give that, give it to them. <laughs> but it isn't the, it isn't my primary goal. And it isn't the primary thing that I want to, that I want to do. I really just want to tell a good history here so that we have those resources. I do write some theological uh, texts and so on, but those two are not meant to sort of instruct church leaders about what they should be doing or, or try to tell the church what to do. I'm much more modest as a, as a scholar of saying, here are some options or here are some things. And, and, and if the things that I have written about uh, ever, do, ever do influence anybody, wonderful. And if not, that's okay too. So I, I, I don't worry about it too much. Yeah, good answer. Well, I think we will let Taylor off the hook now. We are at an hour, um, which is the time we had allotted for this event. So we'd like to thank Taylor again for um, a very fascinating presentation and for being willing to join us here on Zoom tonight. Um, we'd also again like to remind you that on November 6th, Omisa Polito will be talking about her biography of Margarito Bautista and more broadly about Mexican Mormonism. Um, so we invite you to join us again at that time. So thanks, Taylor, and we will see you all later. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.